0: The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. I think you ought to know the dynamics of and, and, and the vision Of the church that you are a a part of. Our mission, as Christy told you earlier, is to equip people to be real followers of Jesus. That's the mission. That's what we want to do. That's just uh, another way of saying what Jesus called us to do in the Great Commission, to go into all the world and to make disciples. The vision is more to do with, not with just what we do, but who do we want to be as a church? Who do we want to be as a church? And there's many places I could start, but but one of the things that goes so well with what we just sang about, one of the pieces, if you will, of our vision is this: that we aim to be a church where outside of the Lord, people are our greatest asset. And I say outside of the Lord because obviously the Lord is our greatest asset; we treasure Him above all things. But outside of God Himself, people are our greatest asset. Now. You may say, well, that's obvious. That ought to be the case in every church, and it should be. But there's a temptation in ministry, and it's, it's to value ministry over people, to, to value large church buildings over people, big events over people, music over people. It becomes about the ministry itself rather than the people that we actually minister to. And let me say it like this. People at Real Life Community Church are not a means to an end. You're not here just so we can get something that we want. We truly care about you. And I'm not just talking about the staff. I love our church because this, our, our membership, This it's not a church where it's us four and no more. Like we genuinely, uh, genuinely love people. We really love people. There's a popular saying in ministry that's often said kind of jokingly. I used to have a pastor say this all the time, and it's it's said by frustrated pastors, and it goes like this. Ministry would be great if it were not for the people. Now, if that is my philosophy in ministry, can I suggest to you that I probably should not be in vocational ministry, all right? And and, and I get it. Like, people can be challenging. People can be frustrating. I can be frustrating. Don't say amen, Uh, Nikki says a hearty amen up here. But my call is to minister to people, and not just by action, but with my heart as well. I'm to value God and value people. So I'm to do this from the heart. And I just want you to know this morning, you are so incredibly valuable to the Lord, and you are valuable to Real Life Community Church, every single one of you. There are so many passages that I could use to illustrate this part of the real life community church vision, but I've chosen a very familiar story, the passage of the Good Samaritan. So I invite you, I know you just sat down, but I, I invite you just in honor of the Word of God to stand with me. And if you have your Bibles, go with me to Luke chapter 10. And I'm gonna fix my sleeve because this is gonna drive me crazy. <laughs> Luke chapter 10. If you have it, say amen. If you don't have it, it'll be on the screen for you in just a moment. Luke chapter 10, we're going to begin in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance the priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion and he went to him and bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine and then he set on him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him and the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying take care of him and whatever more you spend I will repay you when I come back which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers and he said the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. I pray you receive it as such, and you may be seated. Well, the story of the Good Samaritan, I've heard many different takes on it, but it is not a story mainly, emphasis on the word mainly, or ultimately about social justice. It is actually a a message about salvation. It is a story of personal evangelism, and we see this in verses 25 through 28. This is why context is so important when you're reading any passage. So I want to begin, if you're taking notes, by addressing the situation. The situation. In other words, why does Jesus tell this story? Let's look at verse 25 together again. And behold, a lawyer stood up to him to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So here is a lawyer, a Jew, a very religious man, or so he thinks, one who is very familiar with the Old Testament law, and he's asking a very great question, How can I have eternal life? This is a question every human being ought to ask. But the problem is this. This lawyer is asking the right question, but his motive is off. He doesn't really care. He thinks he understands the law. He's actually just trying to trap Jesus. Right question, wrong motive. Verse 26, Jesus says to him, I love this. Jesus answers a question with a question. How many know you cannot trap Jesus? He turns it back around on him, and he says, What is written in the law? How do you read it? So this lawyer answers, he says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus turns the question back on him. And now, by the way, there are over 600 commands in the Old Testament that make up the Old Testament law. And this lawyer gives a brilliant summation of of the Old Testament law. He says, I must love God with all of who I am, and I must love my neighbor. This is a great answer because, as a matter of fact, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Jesus gives this same great summation. He says this, you shall love the Lord your God. He was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And think about it. If you do that, if you love God above all things, just take the Ten Commandments. You're not going to break any of those commandments. You're not going to take his name in vain. You're not going to have any false gods before him. You're not going to worship any idols. If you love God, you're going to stay in line with those commandments. And he says this, and second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to break those commandments which are against other men and women. And Jesus said in verse 40, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the hinge in which all the law, all these 600 commands, over 600 commands, hang. So this is a great answer. And Jesus actually says, verse 28, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. And the lawyer comes back with a response, but again, he, he asked the right question, wrong motive, but now he gives a wrong response. He should have said, Jesus, I cannot love God like I'm supposed to. I don't love my neighbor like I'm supposed to. But look at the response, verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself, there it is desiring to justify himself, says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This man must know that he falls short of the glory of God. He doesn't perfectly love, and so he is attempting, out of guilt or whatever it might be, he is attempting to justify himself. Friends, this is what people do when they sin. They attempt to justify themselves. We love playing the blame game. We love telling the Lord, well, at least I'm not like this person in an attempt to make ourselves feel better. Now, I think I shared this story not too long ago, but it goes so well with what I'm uh, preaching about today to drive home this point. When we lived in Tucson, Arizona, my kids were very young, and uh, we loved this place called Pinnacle Peak. The great steakhouse, and it was a little uh, kind of made to look like a western town, and they had shows and all this. It was a great place, and we loved to, to go there. Now, well, there's this incredible restaurant, this steakhouse, where th- there was a, kind of a fun thing that they did. There was a sign on the door that says, Do not wear ties. It says, it's against the law to wear a tie in this restaurant. And if you wore a tie, and many people did, the sheriff in town would come in, and he would cut off your tie, and he would hang it on the wall. And so my, my wife decides to, to, to get my, she thinks it would be really cute for my kids to wear these ties, you know, to wear a tie each. And so uh, I don't remember if Dylan wore one or not, but Connor was about three to five years old at the time. Nikki says, hey, you need to wear a tie. This is going to be fun, and they'll hang it on the wall. And Connor's excited, and he wears a tie. And so we walk in the restaurant, I mean, we're happy and excited, and Connor can't wait to get his tie cut off. And so we start eating. We've got our, you know, our bread and salad and all of that and water. And, and, and we're, we're enjoying fellowship together. And all of a sudden, in walks the sheriff. And this dude looks rough, long beard, wrinkly skin, and just, I mean, got a kind of, kind of gnarl to his face. I mean, he just, uh, just, just looks mean. And he walks in. He's got kind of that scruffy look and, and just that deep, rugged voice. And he just he sees Connor's tie. And he's probably 10 feet away from him. And he he hollers to get the entire restaurant's attention. Ladies and gentlemen, he says, We have a lawbreaker in our midst. And Connor's eyes get huge. He says, Apparently, somebody thinks the law does not apply to them. And he talks about you can't wear a tie in this place. And he says, he points to Connor, he says, Ladies and gentlemen, what should we do? Should we hang him? And the crowd goes wild and they say, hang him. And Connor starts to weep. And the man's walking up, the sheriff's walking up to Connor. And he he doesn't know what to do. And he finally points at his mom. He says, she made me do it. (laughs) He throws her under the bus in an attempt to do what? To save himself, to justify himself. And that's a cute and funny story. I'm sure Connor will thank me for telling that later. But listen, don't we do the same thing? You mess up at work. Isn't it tempting to say, well, so-and-so's been doing this for years, or at least I didn't do it like this person. We want to justify ourselves. That's a dangerous thing to do. As a matter of fact, Many people think that's the pathway to God. If I can just justify my actions and I can make it to God. No, that's the wrong direction. The best thing you can do is admit you're wrong, repent of it, and turn to God. Amen? Tim Keller points out how the Lord, often when we come to Him, He often turns up the heat before He turns it down. He turns up the pressure before He turns it down. And this is exactly what Jesus does out of grace to this Jewish lawyer, he turns up the burner, if you will. And so secondly, i want to look at the story, the story, and this very familiar passage of the Good Samaritan. Look at verse 30. So a man, he says, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. I was thinking through this. This is kind of like uh, when I was growing up. How many of y'all just ever asked a question and you were answered with a story, a long story, And you're like, oh, here we go. This is kind of what Jesus does here. So he tells this story. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 17 miles long, and it was a dangerous, very dangerous road. And often robbers, thieves, uh, really bad people would hang out. They would kind of be lurking in the shadows, waiting for an unprotected traveler to come by. And they would take advantage of the situation. And this is what happens in this story. A man's walking, traveling this path, and he's overtaken. And he is beaten and robbed, and he's left dead. And verse 31 says, Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and you would think, oh, wow, man, a priest. What a great opportunity. And watch what he does. And he saw him, and he passed by on the other side. I know this story's familiar, but don't, don't miss the tragedy of this. This beaten man's in great need, and now we have a religious priest who would have responsibilities in the temple passed by him on the other side of the road. And now watch 32, so there's a second chance here. So likewise, there's a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. This Levite would have been an assistant to the priest. And you know what he does? The same thing he just saw his priest do. He passes him by. By the way, Doesn't that show you the power of example? Brothers and sisters, people are watching us. People are watching you. People are watching me. In our, what we say, what we do, it really does impact other people's lives. We are called, uh, Matthew chapter 5, I believe it is, Jesus, part of Jesus' very famous sermon on the mount. We are called to, Let others see our good works, not for our glory, but that they might instead glorify their Father who's in heaven. So for better or for worse, our example really matters. Have you ever had a child misbehave, especially if you're a parent, and you said, where did you learn to do that? And you know what's coming, don't you? Mom, Dad, I learned it from you. Phew. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? People are watching us. Our example really matters. And so this priest passes him by, and then the, the assistant passes him by. I want to be like a church where we can say like Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 1.11, Be imitators of me, he says. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In other words, follow me as I follow Jesus. How many can truly say that today? Oh, not that we won't mess up. But I mean, can you really tell people, hey, follow me. You want to know how to follow the Lord? Follow me. We want to be a church where we can truly say that. It's one of the most powerful forms of discipleship. Yes, we ought to sit down and study with people. But we ought to be able to tell them, just listen to the way I speak about people. Watch me at work. Watch my work ethic. Watch the way I treat people. Watch the way I speak about other Christians. Follow me as I follow Jesus. Here are two men who would claim to love God and love people. It might be their vision statement. Here are two religious zealots, if you will, who would be proud of their quote unquote law keeping skills. I mean, they think they are somebody, yet they pass up somebody in need. Brothers and sisters, faith without works is not real faith, it is counterfeit faith. It is useless faith. This is what James says in chapter 2, verse 20. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith say him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by faith, faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. Let me ask you this. Have you ever walked up to somebody at Walmart who was just maybe happened to be wearing a navy blue shirt or a dark blue shirt and, uh, and khaki pants, and you ask them about a product, and they're like, what makes you think I work there? And you're like, uh, isn't that obvious? Right? Looks can be really deceiving. You know, we can really fool other people into thinking we're true men and women of God, you know one of the scariest things, though? Friends, I believe we can fool ourselves. I, I think these priests in the story really think they, they love God and love people. It's nothing for them to pass this man by. Not a second thought. No conviction. We've got to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal our own hearts to us. These men demonstrate dead faith. But now Jesus moves on to another man, a Samaritan, who ironically becomes the hero of this story, and I say ironically because the Samaritans are hated by the Jews. They're considered half-breeds, pagans, by these devout Jewish men and women. Verse 33 now says, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, this man who's beaten down, and when he saw him, he had compassion the Samaritan, who would have been an enemy of the guy laying on the street, has compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal. He continues to take care of him. I'm going to go back to those verses in a moment. Verse 36, and he says, Which of these three do you think pr- proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And this lawyer says, The one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and and do likewise. So we have this man who would be considered a pagan an ungodly person who in fact now stops for someone in need and Jesus says oh you want to follow somebody follow the Samaritan not these two this priest and his assistant. So we've looked at the situation we've looked at the story. Number 3 I want to look at the significance. The significance. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is not saying here, remember this is, if you look at the context, this is about salvation. Jesus is not saying that we are saved by charitable deeds. He, it, the, the way to heaven is not to stop and help somebody. I'll tell you what he's saying. It's this, loving people is a sign of genuine faith radically loving people, it is a sign of genuine faith. Now, we at this church, we want to be what kind of followers of Jesus? Help me out. Say it out loud. Come on. Real followers of Jesus. That means we want to be people of genuine faith, not nominal Christians. And one of the evidences of genuine faith is that we have a radical love for God, for Jesus Christ, and we love people radically so jesus is illustrating to this man of the law that he actually does not love god enough that he actually does not love his neighbor enough and he can't apart from jesus christ Because we are a fallen people and every one of us falls short of the glory of God. So yes, what would the way to heaven be by the law? To perfectly love God and perfectly love people. And the point is, none of us have done that. That's the point. Jesus is moving, I believe, to this thought. Lawyer, person of the law. The devout man that you think you are, you need a Savior. And there's a key verse, I love this, in verse 33. It says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw them, I want you to mark this phrase, he had compassion. Now, there's a a word here, and I'm going to probably butcher this, but I'm going to give it my best stab. Here we go. Greek transliteration is splagnozimi. That's a cool word, splagnozimi. Whether I'm saying it correctly or not, I like that word. All right? And it means to be moved or overcome by compassion. Now, if you've read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that is a very familiar phrase to you. As a matter of fact, do you know that it is used 24 times in the four Gospels? Twenty-three of those times, it's talking about Jesus. Jesus was moved with compassion, and he healed somebody. Jesus was moved with compassion, and he delivered somebody. Over and over, Jesus was overcome with compassion. This is a supernatural thing that happens when you are moved for somebody else in this way. Let me ask you this. Have you ever seen someone in a tough situation that you don't even know a stranger, and all of a sudden, you just become overcome with emotion? And you're moved to action. That is being moved by compassion. In and of ourselves, I'm not saying that that can't happen here and there, but in and of ourselves, we are not consistently capable of loving people in this radical way, especially when that person is an enemy like we have in this story. You know what's happened? This Samaritan has been infused with the grace of Jesus Christ. This is somebody who's experienced grace and radical love himself that can only come from Christ, and he is displaying a close walk with the Lord. He's displaying the works of Christ. When you and I, when we have true faith, when we truly know Jesus, it changes fundamentally who we are. You tell me, well, pastor, I know the Lord, but there's been no change in your life. I question the validity of your faith. You become moved when, when when you know Christ. I mean, when you know him, not know about him, when you know him, you and I, we become moved over and over again with compassion. Something happens to your heart. Things make you cry that didn't used to make you tear up. I've had people say this to me. I have so many men that I've counseled with and stuff, and they'll be telling me about something. I mean, these are big, you know, just uh, strong dudes, and they're, they start to weep, and they always apologize. And they say, I don't know what's wrong with me. I didn't used to be this way. I said, Jesus happened in your life. Jesus, uh, you had a Jesus encounter, and that tends to happen. He makes us more emotional, more sensitive, more empathetic, if you will. You know, what is the what is the reason that we would, what, what is our reason for ministering to somebody that we might not even like, that may not even like us, to, to ministering, loving even radically our enemies? I'll tell you what it is. It's this thought. It's it's the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's the understanding that Jesus became your neighbor, and he became my neighbor. For the Bible declares in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. When we were apart from Christ, listen, we were under the wrath of God, meaning we were enemies of God before we came to Christ. Yet that's the state in which Jesus became our neighbor, dying for us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But he did it. So when you think somebody is unlovable and you say, they don't deserve my love, you just remember what Christ has done for you. That's the motor Tim Keller calls for our giving. In real life, we aim to be real followers of Jesus, real people of faith, evidence in the way in which we value God and value other people. And I'm going to ask Butch, if you would come for me, please, just for a moment. I want to just give you a couple of observations here, a few observations here, very quickly. What does this radical love look like? I think we would all say, oh, we love God, we love people. But what does this loving our neighbor really look like? Number one, neighborly love will cross cultural and racial boundaries. Samaritan has compassion and mercy upon a Jew in need, considered an enemy. When you've been touched by Jesus, you realize what we used to see in Sunday school is actually true. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children and even the grown-ups of the world. I'm grateful for this church that we don't have that a sense of that prejudice or but it may not just come in skin color, it could be we could be nationalist and that's equally as wrong. To where we think because we're Americans, we're more deserving of the grace and the mercy of God. But see Loving God in this way will move us beyond cultural, racial boundaries, whatever prejudice one might have. We aim to be a church that cares about all peoples. Number two, neighborly love moves us beyond our comfort zones. Verse 34 kind of freaks me out when I think about it. (laughs) He went to him and he bound up his wounds. Here's a guy, bloody mess for dead. And the guy doesn't stop, the Samaritan doesn't stop and say, hey, let me call somebody a professional. He just starts helping him, cleaning out his wounds, bandaging him up. And if you know me, I'm a germaphobe. I don't. I just don't know about this. But you know what I've learned? Loving people will put you outside of your comfort zone. It'll put you outside of your comfort zone. I remember, I've shared this before, I'm sure, but years ago, 18 years old, and I felt called to prison ministry. No idea why. I didn't have any of my buddy, in my family at that point that was locked up or anything. And just, I just felt called to go. And I went, and I'll never forget when I went to West Liberty Eastern Prison there, penitentiary. And I didn't know what to expect, and the feeling of those bars closing in behind you. And I realized I'm behind there with murderers and. Some of the most people who have committed some of the most vile acts known to men, and I don't know what to expect. And I remember, I I believe Bob, you might have been with me for that first time, and we were uh, standing in the front of the chapel. And there's a we had rehearsed. We I was leading worship, and there was a door. And this the the inmates are sent in single file file line. And uh, and I'm trying to pump myself up for this, and I'm sweating and I'm shaking. And here they come, one by one. These are rough-looking dudes. And I'm like, hey, guys, how's it going? And they look at me like, who is this white boy? <laughs> who is this pasty guy that's just, you know, try, trying to talk? Who do you think you are talking? They, they don't smirk. They just look at me, give me kind of a look like, don't speak to me. And I'm, sh- I'm telling you, I am shaking. Then we start singing, and I'm like, hey, stand with me if you would. And like three guys stand up. I mean, the place is packed out. And like, all right, you know what? I'm not going to fight you on this. Sit if you like, or sit, right? You know, you just kind of play along. And I'm thinking to myself, what in the world am I doing here? This is not comfortable at all. Matter of fact, I'm a little scared right now. At the end of that service, I'll never forget this as long as I live. It's why I go to the halfway house. That's why I was there this morning. Those men who look so rough and tough coming in, 75 of them At the end of that service, as we sang this old hymn, Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Crying out to God, weeping, screaming out, Lord, while on others you are calling, do not pass me. by." In other words, Jesus, I need a touch from you today. I've not been the same since. Why did I do that? As an 18 year old, do you think there's something I'd rather be doing than spending my Saturday at a penitentiary? Don't know anybody else there except the people ministering with me? What motivated me to do it? The radical love that Jesus loved me with. And it'll stretch you beyond your comfort zone. Let me give you one more as I close. Praise team, you can come. Neighborly love is sacrificial. Verse 34, he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. The oil and wine would have cost him something. And he set him on his own animal. I don't know if he had to walk beside him or what. It cost him something. And then he took him to the inn and took care of him. This is not dropping a quarter in a bucket and saying, hey, hope all goes well. Here's a man who really cares. The next day he took out two denarii, gave to the, the innkeeper It says, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. See, worldly love says this. It says, I will help people I like as long as it doesn't cost me anything or as long as I get something in return. That's what worldly love said. But neighborly love says this. Radical, God-fearing love says this. I will help anyone I can, even if it means I have to sacrifice something I really want and get nothing in return. That's radical. Neighborly, neighborly love is radical and it marks genuine faith. When we minister to others in this way, we're ministering to Jesus. And This is what we want to demonstrate in our church. Let me ask you, can you say truly that, that you treasure Christ above all things, that you love God with all of your being? And would you say you really? It's one of our core values. Love God, love people. Could you say, can I say, yeah, I really love people in this radical way. i want to close by just reading one last scripture, Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him there will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another. Don't miss this. Please listen to this. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Because we're going to separate you at the end of the sermon. I'm just joking. And he says this he says, that He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And here's why he says, verse 35 For I was hungry, and you gave me food, I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me, and I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these my brothers, You've done it to me. And then he'll say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, and the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And then they'll also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he'll answer, Truly I say to you, As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now listen, one more time, to be clear. You're not saved because you've given somebody something to drink. The fact that you give somebody something to drink in need, it's one of the, it's not the soul, but it's it's one of the many evidences of genuine faith. May real life community churches, we aim to be real followers of Jesus. Be real people of genuine faith displayed through radical, genuine love. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org.